nowadays nerds are famous for walking around with a pocket protector and a bunch of pens in it. And, you know, they pull the pen out and it's a, a ballpoint pen and they can write with it and then they put it back up and so forth. Once you get to uh, full-fledged, capable nanotechnology, the kind of thing you could build would be that when you when you pull that pen out, you throw it and it expands in the air and, and it's a full-sized humanoid robot. It's it's still not no heavier than the pen was because you know it doesn't do anything to gain uh, mass, but the body's size, shape, and and strength in particular would be essentially equivalent to a, to a human being. But that's roughly the the capability of nanotech reduced to a a, a simple personal scale. again, my friends, and welcome. I am extremely excited to be speaking with Josh Stores Hall today. Josh has had a very distinguished career as a scientist with meaningful contributions in AI, computer architecture, and nanotechnology. His resume is at autogeny.org. It is very long. You are welcome to check it out for yourself. Uh, now he identifies as an independent scientist and author. Most recently, he published a book called Where's My Flying Car, which was just republished in hardcover by Stripe Press. And I saw it on Twitter. I grabbed a copy of it and just had my mind blown. And I've been looking forward to this interview since the very first chapter I finished. Today, I finally talked to Josh and I want to share, share uh, as much of what I learned and dig deeper into the aspects of the book, the biggest being what Josh calls the second atomic age which is basically another industrial revolution in the coming decades. It's a combination of multiple technologies that are mutually accelerating and together could provide 10x or 100x leaps in the productivity of technology and therefore the capabilities of humanity and all of us individually. We could see this in our lifetimes if we get it right. I've been absolutely obsessed with this book since I first started reading it. Like all the best books, it's impossible to summarize but I did a short solo podcast one episode ago with some of my favorite highlights, thoughts about the book and in the future, because I was very fired up and it's great prep for, for this interview. I've bought and gifted at least 10 copies. I still have a stack of them here with me to gift impromptu. And I'm very grateful for the conversations I've had with friends about it already. Uh, special shout outs to Max Olson and Sam Hinkey for their contributions to making this a great interview. I ask a number of their questions in here. And I hope this turns out to be one of the most important interviews I ever do. I hope this can be one layer of intellectual snowball that continues to gather momentum and affects our current trajectory and guides us back towards a more abundant future. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears right after two quick messages. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite discoveries of the past few months, which is the Founders Podcast. David Senra, the host, is a biography reading machine. He has read hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies from all across history, and this podcast is him talking through his notes, quotes, and key insights from each book. My favorite piece is sort of a unique talent to, to David to connect the stories between people like Walt Disney, Lucille Ball, Steve Jobs, and Andrew Carnegie. This guy is an encyclopedia of knowledge, and if you don't have time to spend 40 hours reading a massive biography of all of history's greatest entrepreneurs, listening to David's recaps in one or two hours are certainly the next best thing. 
this is a paid podcast and you will get access to the whole back catalog of David's episodes, hundreds of episodes, I think almost 250 now, maybe more for $99 a year or lifetime access for $299. I've listened to more than 10 episodes now. I love the one with Anthony Bourdain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Elon Musk, all some of my heroes. Two of my other heroes, Charlie Munger and Mark Andreessen, both advocate learning through biographies. It's something I love to do. And Founders Podcast is a great way to get those lessons in a high signal way and sort of more efficiently sort through some of the lessons from those great biographies. You can go to founderspodcast.com to learn more and sign up. And you can listen to 30-minute sample episodes, all your favorite podcast readers, or purchase the paid feed again at founderspodcast.com. It's the first link in the show notes. Thank you for supporting the sponsors who help make this show possible. Another way to support the show, have some fun and be part of the action is to invest alongside me and my partners in startups and early stage tech companies. I started an early stage investment fund this year called Rolling Fun with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've all been angel investing for years and along the way managed to invest in a few billion dollar companies. This year we started a fund which lets us work with you to invest your money alongside ours into some of these companies as well. And we'll be investing in the most promising early stage tech companies we can find around the world. If you love this episode and this vision of the future, you'll love the companies we invest in. You can check out some of the previous podcast episodes with Bo and Al to learn more about Rolling Fun. I think you'll enjoy listening to us bullshit and talk through some of our theses and some of the companies that we're working with. I'm having conversations with investors now, and I'm honored that many readers and listeners have already joined the fund as as co-investors with us. Learn more at rolling.fund, which is linked in the show notes below, and accredited investors can invest with us through AngelList today. If you'd like to have uh, a conversation about it or just hear more, um, please reach out. I'd love to talk with you. Now, on with the show. Josh, thanks so much for being here, and thanks so much for writing this book. It shook up my life, and I'm very excited to have you here to hopefully shake up a few thousand, few hundred thousand more lives. Well, when I signed a book, I sometimes, if I if I have the time and ambition, I, I I sign it. I hope you have as much fun reading this as I did writing it, and that's the fact. I I just I really did have a blast uh, doing that, and so. I figured, you know, whatever happened, I had a good time. And apparently other people are having a good time reading it. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I have the exact same philosophy. It excited me to to learn all these things, but it also fired me up and gave me a little bit of, I don't know, it gave me hunger to to change things and like anger at the past as well. So it, it wasn't all like, you know, puppies and rainbows in there. It kind of gave me some sadness about how things have unfolded over the last 50 years, but also a lot of optimism about where we might go in the next 50. Well, yeah, I, I, to some extent, I, I, I share that. But in a slightly longer view, you realize that the Industrial Revolution, per se, was a major good time in human history. And uh, there's lots of human history where things weren't being even nearly as nice as they are now, So, or progress, or, or whatever you want to call it. So to some extent, there there was a bit of a reversion to the mean in, you know, over the past 50 years, everywhere except, for example, computers, communications, and so forth. But all the stuff that we thought was going to happen coming out of the 
the war of the 40s, the 50s, and uh, the 60s, like space travel, just, you know, collapsed on us. And it wasn't that it was technologically impossible because look what they're doing now. It was just a loss of interest. And I think there was a loss of interest in a lot of the other things um, that we expected then. And we could have gotten, but people, you know, they, they went off and wanted to do other things. And, and a lot of them, I, I mean, I, I call it virtue signaling it, it's because it's not things I wanted. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I have theories about it and, and they're theories. I'm not an expert on how, how the human race works. But, you know, anybody can at least sit there and, and a cat can look at a king and, you know, take your best shot. And so some of that's in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was a very interesting mix of, you know, your deep scientific background and sort of some, yeah, theories about about the social movements or social cruft or timeless, you know, foibles of humanity that contribute to whether science continues or, and how it continues and unfolds. And I thought that was some of the really, some of the most interesting stuff, is, you know, almost psychologically getting out of our own way to to let technology sort of do what it can do. Yeah, well, I, I was a bit surprised when I was writing that I kept going back to H.G. Uh, Wells again and again. He was he was actually probably not too well remembered anymore, except for War of the Worlds. But around the turn of the the previous turn of the century, the you know he had just written the Time Machine and the War of the Worlds and a a long nonfiction book about it was called Anticipations about how inventions are going to change the. 20th century to make it uh, much different from the 19th, which was true. And he was, you know, he was, he was, he was very sharp and really into technology and how it affected people and, and, and so forth. And he made a couple of, you know, fairly major errors, but of the people going on back then, he was one of the best. And so as a, as a default, if he said something about it, um, like why are people going to become Flawlessly nevishes, you know, in the in the future. I I said, okay, you know, well, I I'll even just use his word for it, the Eloy, because he has a he had a point, and you know, I I found myself starting from that and then and then proceeding with the the differences between what we actually wind up seeing and 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 what he proposed. But he, you know, he got in the bullseye in the in the, in the first shot. And so it was, it, it was worth listening, reading that story to begin with. That actually really defined science fiction to, to an extent for the 20th century. I mean, you had the cool machines and stuff like that from Jules Verne. But Wells was the first one to really capture what they call the sense of wonder, where, you know, you just, you just get this feeling of, of, of soaking in a much bigger universe than you thought. And so he was he was rightfully the uh, most read writer in the English language around you know, 1900. Wow, I, I didn't realize that I, I did. I mean, I really appreciated how much as a lover of sci fi myself, how much of the book sort of mm -hmm. comes from I, you did this very thorough analysis, even of like all of the predictions of the sci fi writers, you know, kind of prior to post industrial revolution, even post atomic age. And what they thought we would have by you know the year 2020 that, that was a very interesting piece and, and sort of revealing i think as you say up to 
you know, what we, what expectations we lived up to and exceeded and what, which we missed entirely. Yeah. That list of 40 predictions were from people in the fifties and sixties. I didn't actually put any wells in there because I was trying to capture the anticipations of people who had already seen nuclear power, who had already seen jets, who had already seen all this sort of stuff. And basically, you know, if you draw a straight line through what they got from, say, the Wright brothers, the the line doesn't keep going straight. The line just takes a right turn and flat lines. And, and that was, you know, that was something needing an explanation. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> and, and hopefully some rectification, which yes. is, I feel like part of the mission that we're on here. If I, I try not to come into, you know, too many podcasts with an agenda, but I have one here. You know, uh-huh. I, I, <laughs> I hope we can take some small steps, you know, between us and everybody listening to, to hopefully get back on, you know, the, the Henry Adams curve. I, I, most of mm. people, the people listening probably are familiar with Bohr's Law. And, you know, the sort of technology that comes to the forefront there, but showing us Henry Adams curve and hopefully getting us back on the Moore's law for energy of the Henry Adams curve. Could you, could you take us through sort of the, the history of that and you know where, where we fell off of it and how we might get back on? Yeah, well, I, I tacked that name onto it because I was, you know, it, it's a it's a delightful book to read. Henry Adams, who's the, the grandson of John Adams, the pre- second president, and, and 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 his father was another, was John Quincy. So he was, you know, he was right in there, and and he was sort of a man about town of the the U.S. and, and Europe, which is basically you know where the action was in those days. And around 1910, he wrote his autobiography, and he looking back over his life, he says, "Wow." You know, every every year we turn around and, and we get more energy to use. He called it force, but, you know, that's what he meant. And he talked about the amount of coal you could burn for, you know, how much money and how many horsepower there were in a steamship, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And, and it was just fabulously more than had been there when he was born or, you know, a century before, whatever. And he was the first one who really seemed to capture the notion that this is a glorious curve that we're on. And so I named it after, but, but there he was. And, and, and other people have, have seen this. And in fact, up until the seventies, the Henry Adams curve was the law, basically that that's how things worked. We used more and more energy. Our life got better and better. We went from having the Wright brothers model B airplane where, you know, it, two guys sit on this, this contraption that looks like an oversized box kite and and does 15 miles an hour in the air to 727s. Okay, and that's 50 just 50 years is is that much of a jump. And when you get on an airplane today, 60 years after that, you get something that looks almost exactly like that 727. It's a little bigger, it goes a little slower, and it's cheaper per passenger, but that, you know, that's the progress in the in the past 60 years. How do you separate sort of the, I think that's, that is incredibly true for the commercial flights, but we do have some insane innovations in flight in maybe only in the military, but maybe why aren't some of those more distributed or how do you separate sort of the, the innovations that get widely used versus those that, that don't? Well, I think again, what's happened is, is something of a regression to the mean. If you look back at history, almost always the major technological developments were in weaponry. 
And so the, the military is going to have, you know, whatever the, the, the best thing out there is. And I mean, the fact is that I was talking to the London futurists a, a week or two ago, and I was I was pointing out that if we had wanted to, I mean, you look at the technology of the of the SpaceX rockets right now. One of those would get me to London in the same amount of time it took to set up for the Zoom call. So, I mean, it, the, the, it's, the point basically is that it's not a case of technology being incapable or physics not allowing for the sort of things we're thinking of. The case actually is we just didn't do it. So, you know, if you want to get to, to London in 20 minutes, it's not only physically possible, it's technologically possible. I mean, just, you know, imagine a SpaceX Falcon with, with a Mercury capsule on top, right? And boom, there you are. But, but we didn't. So, and, and nobody is doing that. I mean, it's not, not just not the average person. It's not the military. And they're talking about it. They're, they're actually, of course, they, they all have uh, different desiderata for their machines than, than we do. I mean, the military is never going to invent the family car. But they they do enough things that you can look at what they do and say, okay, this is at least a guide to what's technologically possible. So, but when I went back and, and looked at things like that in the in the book, for example, the the, the speed and capacities of of passenger airliners, there's some sense in which you really need to compare apples to apples. And so, I was comparing airliners to airliners. You know, and and it went it went up to basically the 60s, where the where the speeds hit the optimal range. That's basically just transonic, just a, a few percent below the speed of sound. And as you go through the speed of sound, it becomes really tough. And then once you get over it, you get nice smooth flying again, except that you're using three times as much energy per mile. And it was the energy turns out to have been the key to the whole business. I mean. All of the all of the technologies that that we didn't get, you I mean, you remember from the book, I, I I plotted them out across a big graph, and I I expected when I made up that graph, I, I wrote the predictions down, and so there's 40 dots on the page. I expected to have a, a sort of a cluster, a, a two dimensional bell curve cluster of, of stuff, and I expect it to be slightly tilted so you could see that that the more energy something used, the less likely it was to have been achieved. But I was flabbergasted when I actually plotted that out. I just fed, you know, the numbers I had assigned to the to the predictions into a program, plotted them out, and boom, you got the bottom left half of the was all populated with dots, and the top left half was completely empty, as if somebody had chopped the top right half off with a machete. <laughs> And, and that represented basically every innovation that was had high energy intensity that we just didn't manage to achieve any of them because we were lacking in an increase. We, we fell off that Henry Adams curve, which is the energy utilization of the yes. of the civilization, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. That was and, and it was. I, I just have to keep going back to that because it was such a, a startling. Uh, thing that that I, I hadn't even expect. I expected something like it, but not anywhere near that stark. So if you want to know the, the difference between, you know, now and, and the what the G 
suggestions expected. That's it. I mean, the the big, big thing is is energy. Now, of course, once you do that, you have to look and say, and you know, why is energy falling off? What's what happened? What contributed to that? And then we get back to the, the Eloy and the, all the other social and economic things that that I was talking about. Yeah. I, and we'll we'll come back to the social piece sort of a, a little later. I think it, it is very interesting to note, uh, as you do, like that the only areas we have made progress are those in software and sort of computation, which are not very energy intensive, like the lack of cheap energy doesn't constrain growth in those. But but let's talk about what we have to do in order to sort of regain our our energy growth rate, like to get back on the Henry Adams curve and I think by way of definition, that's energy consumed by the species, right? It's it's not availability, but it is like how many watts all of humanity uses collectively, right? Yeah, well, the way I drew it, it was per capita, but it it amounts to the same thing. Okay. There's a there's a two percent growth curve in energy per capita, and there's another two percent in uh, people, and then there's another two percent roughly in energy efficiency. So the effective amount of energy that the human race uses is going well was going up at six percent. And now the per capita has has just really tightly flatlined and is is going slightly down in places like America, although it's going up in China. But I mean that that component of the curve is what the what the typical person sees and that's and that's a hard flat line. And, and you and others have, have pointed out like that energy usage is probably a much better measure of quality of life than, you know, dollars consumed or available or earned, right? Like more energy generally equals a better and safer and more comfortable life, all other things being equal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's this, this great line from uh, Bill Gates, who is, you know, probably the foremost philanthro philanthro uh, good deed doer of the uh, <laughs> world right now and what he says is quote if there was one thing that you could reduce the price of to decrease poverty it would be energy and you know you look at that and you think well if there was one thing you could increase the price of to increase poverty it would be energy by by the exact same token i mean just you know it's just looking at the same thing from the other side and yet, since the '60s, and the you know the, the zeitgeist has been a war on energy, and you know there's there's been all sorts of excuses for for the reasons. But you know when when push comes to shove, the people who are who are you know out in the out in the front of this are basically saying, you know, energy is horrible. We can't do it. You know, people people need to ride bicycles instead of having cars, no matter how clean the cars are, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, ad infinitum. Yeah, that that was maybe the most shocking thing to me is is sort of the the revelation that green activists are act or conservationists are actually anti energy. They're not pro clean energy. They're not. They're just anti energy because they're anti impact. And I had never considered that before, and I found that quite disturbing actually uh, yeah. because that that uh, mm-hmm. functionally means they are pro poverty. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and there's a few contributors to, you know, we talked about, there's definitely a social zeitgeist, as you say, around that. And I'd like to pull that apart a little later. I'd like to get into regulation, but I want to, I want to sort of hear your path forward. You know, what, I think the, 
the common connotation is like more energy equals more pollution or equals more negative impact or is harmful in other ways. But I, I feel like, you know, there's a very clean, scientific, beautiful path forward. What do, you, what do you see evolving? What is the happy path towards more energy for all? Well, I, I think as I, as I pointed out in the book, I'm nowhere near as, as worried about things like climate change as, as many people seem to be. But the same token, we're not going to settle a solar system by burning fossil fuels in Earth's atmosphere. It's just, you know, there's not enough fossil fuels and there's not enough atmosphere. So we need to, to be able to get energy that you can use on the moon, that you can use on the moons of Jupiter, that you can use on, in deep space. And, you know, the bottom line there is, is, is essentially it's either solar power, which is nuclear, or it's nuclear. And, you know, the, the sun puts out a lot of energy, but basically because it's very, very big. I mean, the, the amount of energy produced per pound of sun is less than produced by a, a pile of garbage, you know, just, just slowly rotting away. So it, it's, it's really big and it produces really a lot of, of energy. And we may as well use it, but if we once we get the scientific understanding of of how to a recreate that or b do even better, the the problem of energy just vanishes. I mean, for most of humanity's lifetime, the problem is going to be matter, not energy. We're going to know how to produce energy so spectacularly that that. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be anywhere near the the sort of problem that we think of it as being. Yeah, I think the way you put that in the mm-hmm. book was too cheap to meter, which is a I don't know, yeah. maybe a little cheeky, but the the it's the way we think of bandwidth today, right? Like, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I I just I live in a you know a far rural sort of place, which is great for a writer, and it's a beautiful spot. I look out over the Chesapeake Bay, and you know. It's see the sunset. But the the thing is that, you know, up up until a couple of years ago, I had a DSL line that, that could on a good day get three megabits. And and I they just put in fiber, so I have four hundred megabits. And all of a sudden I can, you know, I don't have to kick my wife off uh, <laughs> when I wanna <laughs> when I wanna watch something. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's it's embarrassment of riches almost. Yeah. And I, I, I'm excited about a vision of the future where energy is that same thing. It, it sort of boggles the mind when you start to think about what you would do with a functionally limitless source of energy and all the other things that that unlocks. And, and, and I think that's where you start to get, um, you know, your, your vision that you kind of put forward as, you know, th- this next industrial revolution, which is th- this combination of abundant energy, probably driven by nuclear, AI, and and nanotech and, and like the synergies for lack of a better word i'm sure you have a perhaps a more scientific word for it but I, i'd love if you show us sort of how those three fit together and and what they can accomplish in concert yeah well synergy is a pretty good word so you know i just called it the second atomic age and it was a pun you know the pun is they used to talk about atomic energy and now we call it nuclear but the fact is that the real atomic Technology is going to be nanotech. When you get to the point of of designing and and building machines an atom at a time, each atom in its place, and and so forth, the the step up in capabilities when you get to that point is just fantastical. And 
although that is not actually going to allow you to do what we call nuclear processes directly. It's going to make our ability to provide the conditions so much better, easier, and 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 easier to fix when something happens, i.e. isotopic separation, both for producing new nuclear fuels and for cleaning up irradiated stuff. If if you wear a pair of gloves in a in a lab where there happens to be a sample of nuclear waste and you throw the gloves out, they're considered nuclear waste simply because they will have been slightly irradiated and and it's it's detectable. But it's it's actually less radiation coming from that than a luminous style watch. And yet, you know, that that when people when people, you know, go on about, you know, oh, the horrible nuclear waste problem. What they're doing is they 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 talk about the really nasty stuff, which is the, the actual spent fuel, where the uranium atoms have broken down into these highly radioactive daughter products. But that's tiny. And the the actual huge amount of of, of so-called waste is the stuff, you know, the gloves that somebody's had on, which are only just detectably more radioactive than you know, they were before and, and probably less radioactive than a banana. So bananas contain enough extra more pa- potassium than, than ordinary stuff, and potassium has enough potassium-40, uh, which is radioactive, that a banana is, is detectably more radioactive than, than the background. So if your nuclear waste is, is, is less radioactive than bananas, then you know you're 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 just making up scare stories. I, I think that's a really <laughs> all of the rebuttals to common concerns around nuclear. I think are, are really important and valuable in this book. And I think you do a pretty thorough job of like, you know, look, these things are not going to spontaneously combust. Having a nuclear power plant in your backyard is not dangerous. The, the radio, our our understanding of what's radioactive and what's dangerous is like wildly out of. <laughs> out of to touch with reality the cost is massively lower you can't weaponize the fuel and there are very very few actually dangerous waste products which i, th- I think are like the main things that people get wrong but is uh, did i miss any in there or or did i understate the absurdity of any of our common concerns about nuclear that you'd like to <laughs> rectify no no I, I i think you have a pretty good uh, handle on it there the the other thing is that for example, it, with as far as radioactivity is concerned, and 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 you pointed this out, people are are overly scared of of radioactivity, and and if you look at the the physiological harm that's done by people worrying about things, in particular worrying about things that they can't help or fix, it's actually a lot worse for them than radiation. <laughs> so so the people who are, who are you know spreading the the scare stories. Are, are actually doing more damage to people than than radiation itself. But on the that and one more one more point here. Now this differs with people and it differs with actual type, types of radiation and exposures and so forth. It's a complicated subject. But there's a, a substantial segment of this phenomenon where radiation at reasonably low levels is actually good for you. It's called hormesis. And the the easy example of that is going out and getting some sun. Okay, it actually enhances the amount of vitamin D your body produces. If if you live 
oh, say in northern Sweden, and you don't go out all winter long and you, and you get you don't use the sun lamp or take vitamin D or something like that. That's as bad for you as being a chain smoker, as far as your your health is concerned. So going out and getting radiation in the sun activates the body's repair and, and defense mechanisms, and you're better off with a certain amount, not not too much, but not too little either. And that's 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 what the the hormesis phenomenon actually is. And again, I, I I will caution that it is complex, and it's different for uh, different people, especially different people at different times of life and different kinds of radiation. And and so you have to know a lot about what's actually going on there. But the the notion that you could blanket, say, no radiation at all is actually harmful. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Could you give us a step, uh, a, a snapshot of like where we are in nanotech right now? I know this is the area you spent most of your career in, and it was the newest to me and feels like the farthest out of, of sort of the three pillars of the next industrial revolution. But where where is nanotech right now? Is it mostly in the lab? Is it starting to get sort of commercialized? Like what are the first use cases that we'll, that we'll see? Maybe that sort of overview. Well, people are, people are beginning to do the stuff. I was, about 10 years ago, I was president of the Foresight Institute, which is the uh, thing that Drexler founded to, to try and help nanotech come along and I said, look, you know, instead of just sitting around waiting, why don't we try the scheme that Feynman came up with around 1960? Start with a machine shop, you know, and 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 understand the architecture you need to build another machine shop smaller. And that's not easy because the new machine shop has to have higher uh, tolerances, you know, tighter tolerances in the machines and and smoother surfaces, and you know, it just has to be better. Than the machine that made it, and and that is not obviously easy. In fact, it's it's very hard. But that's what actually happened over the course of the industrial revolution. We started out with blacksmiths, and we got to you know hyper fine machinery with you know sub micron tolerances, and every one of them was made by an earlier machine. So that ha- that that happens, and it can work. And if you sit down and try to do it specifically, you ought to be able to do it faster than you know the industrial revolution. But even if you don't, the that's what the industrial revolution has done and is doing and will continue to do. So the question is not whether we are going to get to nanotechnology where we are designing things atom by atom. It's how long it's going to take to get there and how fast the progress is going to be and how focused it is. And and if I had to sit down and, and talk about the whole business, I would say that progress has really been a continuation of the of the industrial revolution trend, rather than having been a focused moonshot or you know Manhattan Project to to get nanotech. And that's a shame because if it had been the we would have a bunch of this stuff now. And, you know, I might live forever, but in fact, chances are I won't. So, yes, but that's just a personal thing. So anyways, uh, but, you know, it technology does advance and, and I'm alive because of it. So more than one, more than one case. So it, it, it you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll continue to be lucky. But so, so we're somewhere between just what would have happened anyway and 
taking advantage of the of the insights of of the great minds that came up with this. And, and in the book, I talk about Heinlein, Feynman, and 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 Drexler because they were the three that hit on the on the specific thing that we that we were talking about. But it, to to make just a general sort of a description of the of the problem is that we do have a anatomically precise technology right now it's it's life it's just how cells work and all of the mechanisms inside of a cell that are made of protein and rna and and all that sort of stuff are in fact designed and uh manufactured atom for atom they're you know they're every a place for every atom and every atom in its place and that gives it properties that you know big clunky machines just don't have and so imagine something like life only with the the power densities and speeds of mechanical machines because life uses a a fairly slow design process that is best for evolvability whereas if i were going to build a machine to do something i wouldn't care whether it evolved i wanted to do the one thing and i would design a a hard high temperature fast design that that could not evolve because i don't want it to and and you're you're looking at a completely different phase of technology there yeah, that that's probably the most mind-boggling thing is is the stuff that unlocks when when what you're describing, you know, that uh, sort of something that's as fast and smart and replicable as as we want it to be really goes. Like that is where, you know, the sci-fi turns reality. And it, it, you know, what are some of the things that you see that might enter our practical lives when when we sort of unlock that next um nanotechnology well, I, industrial the, base, of, as you say. One of the things that, that will we'll give you a kind of a cute example of, of the sort of technology's capability is that nowadays nerds are famous for walking around with a pocket protector and a bunch of pens in it. And, you know, they pull the pen out and it's a ballpoint pen and they can write with it and then they put it back up and so forth. Once you get to uh, full-fledged, capable nanotechnology, the kind of thing you could build would be that when you when you pull that pen out, you throw it and it expands in the air and and is a full sized humanoid robot. It's it's still not no heavier than the pen was because you know it doesn't do anything to gain uh, mass, but the the body size, shape, and and strength in particular would be essentially equivalent to a, to a human being. And you know, and then it does its job, and and then you you know pulls itself back up and you stick it in your pocket and walk off. But the, I mean, that's that's roughly the the capability of nanotech reduced to a a, a simple personal scale thing. I mean, if you want to if you want to take the opposite end, you take the little uh, conversation I had with Rob Freitas a couple of decades ago when we were trying to figure out how quickly you could reproduce the entire capital stock of of the United States. And we sat down and, and you know, diddled in our books and calculated and so forth and looked, looked back up at each other and in right in unison said, about a week. You know, that that means replace every single machine and building and road and ship and, you know, tower and, and transmission line and everything out there. Everything that we have built could be rebuilt 
in a week if we had mature nanotech. That's You're how much faster Josh. it could work. <laughs> blowing my mind. So, so, and to, to, to have that level of, of nanotech, we, we certainly need that abundant nuclear energy that we talked about. What, what else sort of, what other breakthroughs do, do we need to have, you know, either, either in the lab or, or outside in order to kind of inch us towards that, that future? Well, the, the, the three legs on my three-legged stool that I, that I call the, the second atomic age are the, the nanotech for the physical manipulation, the nuclear for the energy, which is made much easier and, and more likely to happen by the nanotech, not only for the machines that you need to make it work, but for the machines that you need to do the science and understand what's going on and, and, and that sort of thing. So you, so you have science to go in nuclear and then you have the, the can't, we pretty much understand everything you need to do in nanotech. We just haven't gotten to gotten around to doing it. We don't know everything you need to do in nuclear, but we have, you know, we have science, we have the tools and nanotech will give us much better tools. And so, you know, once we have a decent nanotech technology, you ought to be able to start uh, improving your your nuclear usage. I mean, and ultimately, I'm I'm talking into the century or or maybe even later, you'll get to a point where any any energy that's available, according to the physics, can be captured and used. So, and at that point, you can you can take ordinary nitrogen, you know, the the major component of the air that that's just an inert gas, fuse the two nitrogen atoms and a nitrogen molecule, get a silicon atom out and lots of energy. So, I mean, and so just plain empty air is your fuel. So, I mean, that's, as I say, it's probably, that's probably a century off, but, but all you have to do is just look at the, the chart of the nuclides, the sort of the, the nuclear version of the periodic table and, you know, and just do the math that there's the energy. It's just sitting there. So the third leg of the of our triad here is is intelligence, and that is you know often called artificial intelligence today, but it's, it requires a better understanding of decision making processes, a better use of feedback in the situations where we actually need to do decision making, and ultimately the the ability to program those into uh, a machine and 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 have something that is, has got the sort of smarts and common sense of a human being. And we've made it enormous strides. In fact, of all the technologies that we have right now, AI is the one that is most on the track that people back in the 60s thought it was going to be. Isaac Asimov had a very good notion of of just how far robots would be nowadays, and and he got it just about right. So to understand how much we need that. Go back to, we can replace the entire capital stock of the United States in a week. How long is it going to take you to get construction permits? <laughs> okay. And draw, and draw blueprints. And yeah. 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 yeah so, so, I mean, and design it and, and do it legally. It turns out that that is by far the, the worst part of, even with today's technology. If you're trying to do anything that that you're not already 
license to do. You know, well, the the really worst example is build a nuclear power plant. But yes. but I'm I'm talking about putting a wing on my house. You know, it, that's the mm-hmm. that is the 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 hardest part of the whole process. Yeah, the, the AI was a very interesting sort of component. So, so I, I was surprised to hear that we are actually, to your eyes, farther ahead in nanotech than we are in nuclear. I, I think just in the sort of in ether, way more people talk about nuclear, and we've had nuclear for longer than we've had nanotech. So I just kind of assumed that we were that nanotech was the furthest behind, and that nuclear was. But you know, if we're if we are the farthest behind on nuclear, but we need the nan we need nuclear to power the nanotech. And the feedback loop between those two that gets us into those sort of small self-powered devices that that is very interesting yeah well right now the the best we can do as far as nuclear is concerned is is have a giant critical mass you know big reactor and with cores and coolings and containment domes and all that sort of stuff and you really can't make it smaller than that if you're if you're a lab and you're just there's there have been you know sort of nuclear that would fit in a phone booth but there's there's no basic technology base for doing that, and the best way to do it is nowhere near understood. The difference is, and and you got this exactly right. The difference is that since the '60s, chemistry didn't stop, and in particular, biology didn't stop. People people have been learning by leaps and bounds, cool molecular biology stuff. You know, getting all the way up to CRISPR and and the ability to say, okay, I want my DNA to say this, let's just make it that way. You know, it's, it's almost like a printer for, for DNA. And all you have to do now is know what to print. Well, the on the other hand, nuclear physics and nuclear engineering didn't just flatline in the in the 70s. They cratered and and you know went down to, to virtually nothing. And so you were right. The nuclear has actually been by far the slowest of the technologies to develop. Yeah, which which is upsetting. And, and we'll we'll come back to a little bit of that in the the regulation and the incentives in a moment here. But I want I want to tie up the sort of the three pillars that you took us through. So of all the people I gifted this book, as I said before we started recording, to uh, ten people. I still have a stack of them in my closet. I want to give them away to everybody. I want everyone on the planet to read this book, and in particular, the more sort of prone they are to helping usher in this future, the more I want them to read it. I'm uh, going to need a bigger camera because my head's swelling here. <laughs> <laughs> By far the most common question, and I, I talked to the few friends sort of in the lead up to this interview, and just said, you know, would. I'm finally interviewing the author. I'm very excited about it. What do you want to know? And probably half of all their questions were basically like resource allocation questions about, you know, all kind of in this general vein of like, how do we make this happen? So I'll, I'll give you a few of these and, and let's see sort of what we can all do to to help bring this forward. But if, if you were in charge of allocating $10 billion in philanthropy with no restrictions, wh- where would you put it? The benevolent worker placement problem for, for helping to mm. move these technologies forward. I would have the biggest yacht you ever saw in your life. <laughs> um, seriously, it, it's it's a hard problem and I'm unlikely to come close to getting it right with a you know with, with a toss off answer. But basically I would I would say first just figure some way of of getting some of it into nuclear. I mean this Bill Gates did that, right? And he, he he's 
having known the problem with the, with this energy and poverty and so forth, he tries to to put money into into nuclear, and the the NRC stepped on him and said, you know, you can't do that here. So he went to China and started, you know, because they're much more into high power technology than we are nowadays, and they they were saying sure, and then the the administration stepped on him again, saying, no, you can't give this stuff to the Chinese. So anyway, the I I don't know, maybe you would just have to hire a lot of lawyers first. But, you know, that that's that now unfortunately seems to be where we're sitting. So as, as far as I mean, I I'm I'm a technologist, so I, I tend to look at the problems and say, OK, it's, it's you know, how do you invent this and how do you build that and and so forth. And and then then I, I kind of look up and notice that there, there are people out there that, that, you know, make their living keeping you from doing it. And, and you know, the, it was sort of my reaction to that that, that, that caused the, the, the book to come the way it did. But unfortunately, there's been this, this notion that we don't have flying cars because you can't make flying cars. You know, it, it, it would be impossible for the average person to, to own one or to fly one or, or all that sort of stuff. And so one of the one of the main things of the book was I, I just wanted to look at that and say, is that really true? And of course, it's not. The, the, the real reason we don't have flying cars has a lot to do with economics. First off, nobody's going to buy a flying car if it's not worth more than a ground car because they already have a ground car. They're used to them. You want to you want a flying car that can do more things better than your ground car. And so you have to have, you know, some kind of extra push there. Well, it turns out that one of the one of the big extra pushes about uh, flying machines is that they get you there faster. So I said, so I, I, I went and looked up the, the travel literature, travel theory, and, and, and basically worked out how much value there was to being able to get places fast. And so when you build a flying car, I can tell you at least as at, at a first cut. I mean, this is this is no by no means a PhD in economics, but you know, as, as a first cut, I can tell you that if you have a, a thing that can take off from your driveway and go at roughly airliner speeds to where you're going and then land in the in the other driveway, it would be worth seven times as much as a as a ground car. And and yeah, that might be ten, it might be five, but you know, that that's the number I got. And so the first thing is, here you have at least the other side of the equation. Everybody who I've seen who has looked at flying cars say, how much does it cost to build this? And, you know, what can you get away with, blah, 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 blah. But the other half of the equation is, how much is it worth? Because if, if, if it costs less to build it than it's worth, people will build it. And if it costs more, then they won't. And, and there's other reasons for having a flying car. I mean, if, if, if I had one that was, that was only you know, three times as valuable as my car or even as valuable as my car. Since we, I, I'm a, an early adopting techno freak, I would get one if I could, if I could possibly manage to afford it. But, but the average and you did, person- And went, you did get a plane and a pilot's license did, as you researched yeah. this book. So in a way you have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a matter of fact, not only that, we, my wife and I got a gyro and, and uh, cool. both learned to, both learned to fly that. So, you know, we, we're, you know, we're, we will do that. I mean, somebody will, and it, it and and the kinks will get worked out one way or the other, and so forth. 
But the the bottom line is that to build the flying car that does that, I mean, you have to you have to go for the not only the high speed but the driveway. Okay, mm-hmm. and to build a car like that, it has to have a megawatt engine, a thousand horsepower, and and that runs instantly afoul of the collapse of the Henry Adams curve. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't have flying cars, because the 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 collapse of of energy per capita leaves us without being able to build the high value flying cars. And that back to that energy is is upstream of of absolutely everything. Yeah. So as we think about how we how we invest, you know, a lot a lot of the people uh, listening, I think, are investors, and I, I love investing in early stage technology. I think is is a contribution to bringing more of it about. We, we've seen a lot of money go into. I, not even a lot of money really go into transportation, but I, I rarely hear about nanotech startups getting funded. Like, how do you, how do you see that the process of these technologies get commercialized and get investment? Like, where do you expect this to sort of enter the world economy and, and expand from there? Well, I can give you a good example. That's when it's when I predicted ten years ago in an earlier book, which was about artificial intelligence, and. I said, you know, all these people saying this is what we need to do to produce AI. This is this other thing. You know, we're going to build an AI that's going to be so smart it's going to write AI all by itself. Even though, you know, you figure, well, how's it going to write itself if it doesn't exist yet? But anyway, there's all this sort of stuff that people had other all sorts of schemes for for producing AI. And I said, no, that's not going to be the way it works. What's going to happen is people are going to keep plugging away and at some point, the the latest developments are going to start being promising, and people are going to do them, and they're going to start using them, and they're going to work. And once they start noticeably working and doing stuff that, that people didn't quite realize or didn't expect that um, they were going to be capable of, the watershed and Google Translate, you know, overnight, all of a sudden, they they, they swapped in the, the neural net version and, and, and boom, it started working so much better right overnight. And and once something like that happened and, and it happened in more than one place, then all of a sudden the, the, the VCs are going to come around and say, oh, looks like this, something is going on here. And they're going to start putting money into it. And once the money starts going into it, then you're going to have the resources to take all the new developments and, and push them. And, and there's going to be a self-accelerating process. And that's exactly what happened. And, and that's the AI boom we have today. So for nanotech, I think that's basically all you need. I, I think that that people keep plugging along and you know a few more quote good ideas show up and that and some of them start working and, and doing things that used to be expensive, cheaply or better or, or, or whatever. And, and you're going to have the same thought. It's probably going to happen in this decade. In, in, I mean, I, that's been predicted before, but, well, it's complicated. But anyway, I think that there's a, probably a, a decent chance that it will happen in this decade, and, and if not, in the next. So, but it's going to look like the AI boom. It's, it, people are just going to say, Oh, look, this is this is working better than we thought. Um, let's put some money into it and that will accelerate and and Bob's your uncle. So that leaves you with with nuclear, and that's a completely different animal. You've got a whole bunch of roadblocks in your way, and you have, you know, 
60 years of, of neglected science. So it's going to be a harder sell and, and a harder catch up to do. But at least there's a possibility that people, because they're so worried about fossil fuels, are going to begin to start looking at this again and, and at least start filling in the, the science gap. And you can never tell what regulation is going to do. And, and I, I wouldn't even uh, take a guess. But it's, it is possible for, for something like that to happen, even with the, with the roadblocks. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how different those are those are going to evolve. You know, as you say, the the difference in what you expect the next step to look like in nanotech versus versus nuclear. It, it, it seems so that pre VC pre the boom you're sort of talking about, where something really starts to work and commercial money comes in, that it's mostly. Is it true that most of this is sort of funded by the government? Most of this early nanotech research comes from from limited grants and stuff from central funding sources? Well, that's actually part of the problem was that nanotech research was going on in the funded university military complex. I was in that myself. And so what happens is, you know, you have to go and find some guy in, in DARPA or NSF or, you know, who who likes what it is you're doing. And, you know, the further you get from the military and the closer you get to the the NSF in the in the science world, the more politics is 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 involved. I mean, the, so DARPA can fund something just because one guy likes it. But you know you got all sorts of peer review and 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 plenty of chances for people to play politics and and trip you up. The closer you get over to the to the science side of thing. So what happened was that when they they did the National Nanotechnology Initiative, they didn't actually put any extra money in it for nanotechnology. What they did was they just stole money from a whole bunch of other budgets of places that were doing things like macromolecular chemistry and surface science and and that kind of stuff, Um, all of which could be thought of as being relevant to nanotechnology and vice versa. And I said, okay, now this money is in the National Nanotech Initiative. And all the people who had been getting this money said, oh, no, you don't. And so there was a huge political backlash, and it kind of clobbered the research in nanotech that wasn't the sort of stuff that people had already been doing. And I I was there, and I watched that happen. And I don't think that's going to happen again, because I think that the process I'm describing, the one in the the one with the model the model in the AI world, is going to be private money. And people are going to be doing it because they see it working, as opposed to people trying to stop it because they were already doing something differently and didn't want that money going to nano. But the so so yeah, the process is probably going to be like the the AI one. Now the 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 heyday of government funding for artificial intelligence was the 60s and 70s, and. I was there too, as it turns out, and you know it it it, it went on and it went on and it went on and and then you know, sometime in the eighties they get tired of it because you know people have been promising them all this wonderful stuff and it didn't happen and so the people in the field call it the AI winter after after nuclear winter but it was you know basically this this big funding crash and and then and then AI kind of uh, muddled along and 
the reason that AI got better and better over all of those years was simply and purely because computers got faster and faster and had more memory. And there was things that it simply isn't possible to do with a small program on a small computer, no matter how ingenious it is. You have to use brute force. So in, in some of this, these funding methods, you know, if, if nanotech's in this sort of dark period between centralized funding sort of failed for all the reasons that you just described, and we're not quite at, you know, this influx of, of VC money, what are the alternatives to, to either government money or private money? How do we help sort of bridge the gap between, you know, to, to get these technologies into clearly the, the space of commercialization and that, re, that feedback loop of, you know, invention and product and return on capital oh my goodness you know if, if you're if you I'm say putting all the all the world's problems yeah, on your back yeah. in this interview that's uh, your, your only hope josh <laughs> well i mean basically uh you know if, if you say it's not government and it's not private you're looking for angels and aliens here but i think i think there's enough uh private money that is feasible to to do especially nanotech and as we know there's 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 private money to do nuclear, I know we, we have we have Gates, we have the the fusion reactor that coming out of MIT, which is much more likely to succeed than the gigantic European ITER project. If you if you know what that is, it, it's this 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 really monstrous thing that they're they're trying to build a, a, a tokamak with 10, 15 year old magnet technology because it's a government project, and you know that's when the design was started. And so, you know, chances are by, you know, 2035, they're going to reach break-even in, in the actual reactor itself. But by that time, there's going to be commercial fusion from the, you know, 20-odd different fusion startups out there right now. So there is private money going into nuclear. It's mostly fusion because everybody thinks that fission is, is old-fashioned and, and so forth. There are still some interesting other pathways into nuclear. I mean, there's there's this NASA thing where it's a, a kind of a mush of cold fusion and a um, particle accelerator where where they 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 take metals and load them with deuterium the way you would in a in a cold fusion experiment and then they shove it in front of a particle accelerator and boom, fusion happens. And, you know, and, and it's obvious it's happening and they can turn it on and off at will and all this sort of stuff. And that's going on at NASA right now. And I believe the Navy is into it and, and some other people. But there, there's a lots of projects like that. And not all of them will work, maybe not even most of them will work, but but some of them will. And so I, I think I think the new magnetic confinement uh, fusion thing that's gotten well over a billion in private funding at it's an MIT spinoff is is likely to produce break-even energy. I I don't know. I have no clue actually whether it's going to be commercially feasible or not. But I, you know, if it if it actually works and you know somebody looks at it and says, well, we can do this this way and and it will be half as expensive, you know, you you're you're still talking 2030s, but you know, well fusion power. And and there's there's like I say, there's there's at least 20 different companies like that, some better and some less better funded, but, but they're all out there swinging. That's extremely encouraging. It, it's, it sounds like more progress than not, at least in some small sort of distributed experiments. I'm, I'm glad to hear that the regulatory 
veil isn't stifling absolutely everything, you know, before it at least gets a chance to walk. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a there's a number yeah. of questions around that actually too. So you know maybe look at what were some of the most damaging regulatory either laws or, or agencies that that you saw towards towards some of these innovations. You know if you if you could remove one one or two or or how do you think we can best sort of advocate and and move policymakers towards something slightly more sane when it comes to mm-hmm. probably energy and nuclear in particular. I think the NRC is probably the worst. If you pick a single particular agency, the FAA is a huge stumbling block to private aviation. If you want to talk about private aviation, the the trial lawyers, the ambulance chasers, for lack of a better term, are what actually destroyed the the light aircraft industry. And that was back around back around 1980. There, there was a shift in the interpretation of the law that allowed, say, you're a pilot, you know, and, and you get drunk and you have this 40-year-old airplane and you fly into somebody's house and you die and the house burns down. And, you know, everybody is a victim because, you know, the people in the house and all your relatives and, and so forth. Who do they sue? They sue the manufacturer of the airplane. Right, even though it was built forty years ago, and you should never have been flying it in the first place, um, let alone drunk. Yeah, you know, right. So, <laughs> yeah. but but that's the way it works, and and that completely destroyed the the private aircraft industry. And so, basically, there, there's two kinds of airplanes out there: small private ones, and they are forty years old and homemade. Interesting. Yeah. And and the commercial, I mean, the regulatory burden on the commercial airline industry, enormous and expensive as well. And I think, I think I was listening to one of your other interviews. He said there was, there was a nuclear project that had basically raised a billion dollars and spent all of it on lawyers before, oh, before making really yeah, any right. tangible projects, progress in, in the real world towards energy generation. Yeah, what, what was I the name was of that? New scale. It, 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 I was yeah. flabbergasted with how much money it cost them just to file a, an application yeah. to, to, to build and run a experimental reactor in their new design. So yeah, abolish the NRC is, is a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, re, a reasonable step. Maybe we, right. we can maybe take, and, and there's mm-hmm. a, there's a probably a perception war as well, knowing that, you know, the politicians are probably a reflection of the, whoever's winning the meme war of any given technology at a current time. They're just reflecting our own policies back to us. I, I hope there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. It really is. Yeah, I, I hope that you know this podcast is one small spear in a wall of you know the anti-propaganda and pro pro-technology right. propaganda. Yeah, um, pull pull a finger out of the dike and hope the trickle uh, <laughs> gets bigger and bigger. Yes, if I mean, the regulatory, you know, when, as I was reading the book and thinking about the the regulatory challenges that you talked about in there, and you know how much that's hampered the growth of of nuclear and energy in general one of the good things about that is, you know, there's a lot of governments on earth and I have to imagine that somewhere there's someone who is hungrier, you know, governments compete for, for tax dollars and positions. And I imagine there's some governments that have to be, or become pretty quickly friendly towards experimenting with, with nuclear, especially with some of the political challenges that come with relying on fossil fuels. Um, that we see now, but are there in your experience, governments or places that are aggressively experimenting with this that you know dollars or talent will flow over time and we'll see something some country sort of take the forefront in this well i i certainly hope so 
And the problem with that is basically that the, what I call the Machiavelli effect, works between countries as well as individuals and, and bureaucracies. And the, the bottom line is that, you know, if you're a, a little country, suppose you were, say, Estonia, where, where actually they, they do a lot of cool experimentation and, and, and progressive stuff, the, and they suddenly started a fast-advancing nuclear program, the, they would quickly be accused of trying to build nuclear weapons. And and get stepped on, and yeah. So just think of all the other little countries you know of that are trying to do that. So it's it's not just as simple as as somebody being out from under and 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 getting to to, to try this stuff. There's still a uh, a fair thicket of gram- brambles that that you have to navigate through to to get there. But I think that the closer we get to something that 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 really starts working. I mean, right now, things like the, the fusion reactors I was talking about, which are the, the sort of things you can build because it, it's licensed more like a, a scientific instrument than a, a nuclear power plant. And so that's where a lot of the money is going in, in, in what you would call nuclear experimentation nowadays. As soon as people begin to find ways of, of, of doing things that, that are not billion dollar projects, but million dollar projects, then you'll, you'll start to see a thousand uh, flowers bloom and, 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 and more progress, sort of just like AI. Right now, the, the kind of computer that you can get and put on your desk is literally hundreds of times more powerful than you know, Cray One, which cost millions of dollars back in the day. And back in the, in the early heyday of AI, you know, the, the PDP-10s at, at MIT that they were doing all the classic AI list programming on had uh, a million words of memory, ran one million instructions per second, and cost a million dollars. And that's, I mean, you can, you can get a single board computer you put in your pocket, much less your your cell phone has has way more than that. And something that a, a hobbyist could can afford and and do real serious AI experimentation you know, is, is, is still, you know, like the computer you always wanted is $5,000. That, that's, that's the saying from way back when, you know, well, you know, so yeah. And, and, and almost anybody can, can do that if, if, if that's what's very important to them. That is an interesting thing about studying sort of the history of, you know, science and technology and discoveries, how many of them come from these decentralized experimental roots and how few really come from the institutions that you might expect are making these breakthroughs. I think in part due to just the incentives of who's working on what and who has reason to, you know, like there's, there's all these, you know, energy companies and oil companies running sort of propaganda campaigns about what they support in terms of clean energy and renewables and things like that. Do do you, do you buy that? Um, Or do you essentially think think that I think that there, there's there's examples in the in the business world without even getting into the science and technology, which is you know all the all the new growth ideas and and new jobs and all that sort of stuff come from the startups, and you know then you know you 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 found a startup and and it grows and grows and then you sell it and you know you either you know depending on just how how happy you are you you found another one and do it again or you buy a yacht, but the, so. But but that's you know that it, all all your your listeners who are in the business world 
you know, know that. So, and, and all I have to say really is the, the scientific engineering technological world is just the same way. Yeah. The, 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 I think this was from one of your other interviews talking about the, something that I hadn't been aware of being outside that world of, of academia and science is, you know, the, the biases and incentives within that are just as varied, sundry and dangerous as the ones in, in the business world or the political world. You know, ex outside of science, we have this view that, you know, there is a body of science and everyone's just trying to sort of find the truth. And you, you broke down sort of all of the various incentives that various scientists might have that might influence their, their work or their resources and how they allocate their things, let alone sort of the outcomes that they arrive at and the views that they support. You know, and, well, having had, you know, lots of personal experience in the scientific world and some experience, most of it from my wife, who was in the, the business world, I would have said that the business world is, is, is slightly nicer than the, than the, than the academic or science world, that it's a little more cutthroat on the academic side. Because it's a little more zero sum. Absolutely. That, that would be exactly, if I were going to draw a reason for it, that's, that's what I would say. So is, and what are the, what are the incentives? I mean, are, are scientists acting to you know, support, support their industries? Are they supporting their, their core theses? Are they just kind of trying to protect their career in many cases? Like, and, and how do you separate the, who is a, who is a trustworthy sort of upholder of the true definition of science versus you know, someone who's credentialed, but really supporting their own agenda? Basically all of the above. I mean, if you want to be able to pick out who's the good guys and the bad guys, you know, I, I can't tell you, go watch Game of Thrones. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's any redeeming characters in that one. I'm hoping there are in, in this cast. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, well I, I, I gotta I, say, they, I gotta say, basically they, they, they film on some really spectacularly beautiful locations. <laughs> I can't say so much to the people. <laughs> how do you, who do you who do you look to in this world? Like how do you you know? I, I note that your bio starts with you know, an independent scientist and author. You know, who mm. I think that's a very deliberate choice to mm. identify yourself that way. And and you know, who else would you um, recommend that we look to that might not have these this conflict? Well, if I if I knew a really good big one, I would be you know doing it. But at the moment, like I, I worked at, at Rutgers mostly for federal money for most of the you know part of the uh, 20th century that 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 I was in there doing that kind of thing. And it, interestingly enough, just to to hit another point that we've talked about before, I started out in artificial intelligence in a big way and and did a lot of studying of that and so forth, and ultimately came to the conclusion that what we really needed uh, was not more ingenious algorithms, but faster machines. And so I, I shifted from AI to architecture, designing you know, massively parallel machines and, and that kind of thing. And you know, purely by luck, I guess, you know, shifted from a sinking ship to a, a moving one and, and finished out my career there doing that kind of thing. And then basically, you know, got into nanotech and thought it was so cool that I, I just hop, skipped and jumped. And so I was president of Foresight Institute for a while and was a, a startup scientist at, at Nanorex, which was trying to build a uh, molecular CAD system, which, you know, it, it, it's a good thing and, and somebody will have to go back and do that again. But 
we actually had a, a very really nice little piece of software that, that you could use to design molecular machines and that kind of thing. So once I got out of that, I, I just started writing books since I my my business world wife was easily capable of supporting us for 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 much more than you know we I would have ever gotten in the academic world. So you know that that's my career. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm and I'm very glad that you have shifted to book writing. I, I hope um you know, that this has a, a wide ranging and massive impact. I, I heard you describe, you know, you, you set out to, as many authors, including myself, do set out on what you think is a two-year project and then find out it's it's much more than that. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And, and you've sort of, I, I think, uh, paraphrasing, but accidentally written your technical memoirs in this, yeah. which, mm-hmm. which is something I, I really appreciate. I think, you know, you bring a lot of personality to it. It's very wide ranging. It covers a lot of ground. It's fascinating like scientifically and economically and gives me you know great dreams for the future and you're swelling my head again yeah i'll do it i'll do it a few more times if you give me the chance you know as a science fiction fan i appreciate that you you know one you reference a lot of science fiction you're clearly motivated by a lot of it and you have i think you almost end the book with a call to science fiction to sort of get back to what it does best which is let us dream you know dream big dreams for the future and get greedy for, a, for an incredible, you know, mm-hmm. next sort of huge, yeah. huge thing. Uh, well, that's, it's but, what we could do. And, and the, the current zeitgeist of, of just lying around and waiting for the world to end and going, Oh, um, <laughs> it, it's just, you know, it, I, I can't see that. I, you know, we had, we had a glorious future before us in the sixties and we still do. All we have to do is actually realize it and, and, and go do it. What what do you see as as some of the most inspiring stuff that's been created recently from a science fiction perspective? Oh boy! Um, actually, I, I haven't read that much of, of current currently produced science fiction, and so I probably would do a bad joy a uh, bad job trying to to pick and choose among the the, the people writing right now. I, let's see the 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 one author that I'm really fond of that does not get the sort of cachet among the the golden age guys, even though he was, is the let's see, he was the, he was the author of uh, Little Fuzzy, and he, that he is known for that, and 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 I, I, that is correct. But he he wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. In fact, the best of the he called it Paratime, which is which is you know a universe where all the possible time streams you know have, have are you're able to travel back and forth between them and but he had a he had a perspective on science fiction that most of the other writers didn't have and the reason is that they were things like Asimov was a chemist and Heinlein was a naval officer and 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 that sort of thing well he was a policeman Piper was a private railroad policeman and if you read his stuff, knowing that it it just jumps out at you. He, he knows a lot more about that kind of thing. And and one of the things about literature in general is that the things that we really grabbed us in in literature and and, and that and that we remember it for is not the grand heroes and all that sort of stuff. It's the evil guys. It's, it's the villains and the crooks and and all that sort of stuff. And so if you have much more graphically drawn, believably drawn villains, then 
you're going to write a, a much more compelling book. And so that's, that's one of the things he does. Yeah. And I'm just on his Wikipedia page on self-educated, very interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting guy. Cool. I'll have to check some of those out. If Andy Weir is a, a more contemporary author that I've enjoyed, he wrote The Martian and more yes, recently, right. Hail Mary, mm-hmm. which I like, it, right. it, at least mm-hmm. attempts to involve and does a quite a rigorous job, I think, of, you know, involving the actual scientific method and some <laughs> some reasonably appropriate math. But yeah, it's, not, would, it's, it's not the hundred years out stuff that... Yeah, yeah that, there's, it's, it's a tough, a really tough job to, to get that scientifically accurate and get a hundred years out. I mean, it's just... Can't do it. Yeah, but uh, but it's but it's it's fun to try, and you know when when you every generation grows up reading about the dreams of the previous one, you know it, it does sort of continue to cascade things, and we're we're seeing you know everybody work on VR now, sort of guided by Ernest Klein mm-hmm. in Ready Player One, a software version. But yeah, I, I think we underestimate the power of sci-fi and to to show us what's possible and what we should strive for. Yeah, or uh, Neil Stevenson in what was the what was the one with the the Deliverator where where he is the pizza delivery guy and the, um, uh, the snow and snow crash snow crash yeah that's the yeah. one um, that yeah he he has a you know a a, a VR world overlying you know a, a, a really interestingly fractured remains of the United States and that was in you know thirty years ago I think that he yeah. published that yeah well. Yeah. The interesting thing is that that idea, I mean, not that idea, the snow crash idea, the, mm-hmm. the one that there can be a computer virus that will invade a human mind, mm-hmm. was in the zeitgeist of the science fiction writers. And three different books came out that year making uh. that, that and, and it, that was one of them. I think the other one was Hogan's Giant Star, and, and, and I've forgotten the name of the other one. But, you know, there, there, were, there were three books that year that had that as a premise. And it's like, interesting. What? How did yeah. that happen <laughs> all at once? Well, yeah, we see, we see the same thing in movies sometimes, I guess. I don't know how that happens, but it, it, competitive interest, maybe the, the Machiavelli yeah. effect again. Yeah, well, um, that, well that and uh, Convergent Evolution. Yeah. I've, I've got a few, I, I would love to keep you all day, but I, I'm sure you have somewhere else to be. So I've got a few closing questions for you if you're up for a few more. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I would be very curious sort of where you, how you look at where you were coming into this book, what your priors were, and some of the things that you maybe changed your mind on in the course of, you know, your, your eight years working on this. Well, I would say the big one is I, I came in with, with a bunch of questions like, you know, is a flying car actually going to be technologically feasible? And, you know, what happened and all that sort of stuff. And then I've, I've described how I realized that, that you know, the, there was a problem with energy, but I had not realized just how clean cut and critical it was and ran into things like the, the Henry Adams curve and so forth. So the, the other things, I mean, the, the Machiavelli effect, you know, that, that came from Machiavelli, you know, 500 years ago. So that's always been there. Still <laughs> that's nothing, yeah, we haven't yeah, solved that one yet. Right. Yeah, that's nothing new. But the notion that that the the population came over some kind of a watershed to make them into the 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 Eloy and the Eloy agonistes in the sixties and seventies took form as I was 
as I was doing the 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 writing and and the analysis. And that and then the other the other really neat thing was travel theory. I mean, most of most of the of the really cool stuff in the in in the book, you know, I, I didn't invent all this stuff. You know, I I I, I read a lot. But the the notion that that you could actually sit down and, and calculate how much a flying car would be worth, also, you know, was 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 a a cool sort of a new thing. I think that was a very interesting discovery to me. Yeah, too the, the theory that basically humans mm-hmm. travel an hour ish a day, mm-hmm. regardless of the technology that they use to travel. So if yeah, you're walking, I, I, yeah, you walk I, an hour a day, and you only travel so yeah. far. If you got a car, if you got a flying car, I thought that was very yeah. interesting. And I had like, I hadn't known that either, but there it is. I mean, it was, yeah. it's right there in the literature. Fascinating. It's like yeah, like the induced demand of you know you make a bigger freeway and more people take it and it ends up just as mo- just as yeah. clogged and takes just as long. Right. Um, the, now that you've dropped the Eloy Agonistes, you, you're going to have to treat us to a definition of that for those who haven't read the book yet. Well, basically, the Eloy are the degenerated remains of humanity in the H.G. Wells novel, The Time Machine. And he figured, you know, that that hundreds of centuries down the road, once you had civilization, people are not going to need their their strength and their aggression and and all the other things that, especially back in his day, were considered the, the manly virtues. Um, and so people would just, you know, lose them, and 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 they would all become sort of big children, basically, and 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 just be run around like chickens and be scared of everything and 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 so forth. And, but you know, you look at you look at the real world, and and that's not exactly how people are. In fact, they're they're worse now than they were before, because they all think they're they have to do something horrible, horribly important to save the world. And so, and and again, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea. But the the idea is that as you move up the scale, of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, where you're not you're well, one of the ways I I, I like to put it is. At, at, at roughly thirty thousand dollars per person income, you quit worrying about how to make ends meet, and you start worrying about how to keep your friends from eating meat. And that's you know, basically the, the the kind of concerns that that our grandparents had are just not the concerns we have because we take the grandparents' concerns for granted, and and that's kind of what changed the zeitgeist in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, we spend more time in sort of this the social strata, which is a zero-sum game, than we do in the, you know, pursuit of just feeding ourselves and staying alive. And to your point, these are related. I think in the book you say, like, you know, the the world in which we stop innovating and stop growing becomes very zero-sum and becomes very contentious and politically and socially savage if we do not have a collective mission to continue to sort of grow and expand then we just start eating each other absolutely yeah. true yes mm-hmm. and and history shows us that and you know if, if there's a if there's a more compelling reason to continue to work on technology and innovation and growth and continue to expand our purview and get back to supporting population growth and supporting energy growth it's understanding that you know that the, the other path is crabs in a bucket and ev- us all trying to like scuttle over each other because that is the default of human nature without a continuously growing pie. Yes, absolutely. And and I mean, just look out there. I mean, the mm-hmm. you know, this is this is a tiny grain of sand in, in the solar system, much less the universe. You know, and, and if we just sit here and keep giving up any 
chance we have of, of building capable technology, you know, the next, next bit, that big asteroid that comes along or the next big solar flare or the next nearby supernova. And, and you know, it's, it's goodbye. And so, you know, as if you, if you believe in the, the value of humanity as a, as a thing in itself, which I do, you know, we, we need to get out there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's the humanity species level loyalty, but there's a little even closer to home. If, if it's hard to abstract that to care about the whole species, just think, you know, if your kids are the most important thing to you and you want them to have a good life and you want that if their kids are the most important thing to them, you may not care about your own great, 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 great grandchildren. But this chain of leaving a slightly better world for the people that you care about the most is, is unbroken. And the closest thing we have to, you know, are aligning with our genetic drives and our sort of built-in motives. We can we can all do well to see this as the playbook for for winning that game. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're a drop of water in the Mississippi River, you don't know where you're going, but you just keep going to the next spot, and you yeah. know, ultimately, ultimately, you get there. But and and that's what it is like to be a human being. You know, you you know a direction. You just you know, but you don't know a destination. Yeah. Okay. So you've got a number of other books, which now that I've read this, I'm, I plan to go go read those. Mostly focused on nanotechnology, I believe. Well, actually, actually, one is nanotech, and the other one is AI robotics. And the AI robotics one was actually the first uh, book to address the question of, you know, are the robots going to, you know, wake up and and take us over and wipe us out or something. And, and I called it ethics for machines and they wouldn't let me use that title. So, but, but we came up with a title anyway, it's called beyond AI. And, but it was the first book in, in what's now considered the field of AI safety. And I was, I was way ahead of my time for 10 years. Nobody thought about it, talked about it, read the book, anything. And all of a sudden it's big, right? So you know, it don't don't write a book that's that far ahead of its time. But nowadays, <laughs> well, 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 there's two reasons. One is that you know nobody's going to read it, and the other one is once you finally do get around to read it, you'll find that I, I spend the first third of the book trying to convince the reader that AI is in fact possible, <laughs> because you know that the, the the readership has will have changed in their in their back underlying beliefs. So yeah. yeah. So, so, so it's, it's a kind of a cool little history of AI to, to start the book off. Yeah. Are, are you concerned now with, with the risk of general AI? I, I don't think so. I, I think basically okay. AI is going to be like any other powerful technology. And it's clear that if you uh, set out to, to do something dangerous with it, like any other technology, you could do something very dangerous and, and, and so forth. But the, the technology itself is is kind of neutral the same way that that other technologies are, and yeah. in fact the AI is is the first one that actually has the the possibility of being uh, net good and and actually good on its own if if we build AIs that that can have what we would consider good morals. And they will be a force for good in the world. And I came to the conclusion when I was was writing the book that it's probably the case that if we actually can produce AIs that are intelligent, they have common sense, 
that can use language the way we do, you know, all, all this sort of stuff, then it's not going to be that hard to put in the conscience. Because, you know, you, there's a whole bunch of things that we need to understand. But mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century, moral philosophers ultimately came to the conclusion, and, and, and this is just the standard way of seeing things now, that the language ability and the ethics ability are very similar in, in, in human minds. Mm-hmm. And so if you can do language, you can do ethics and vice versa. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, yeah, I will be, I'll be reading that. I will read your nanotech book. Are, are there other, I don't know, authors or resources? Like w- where else would you point someone like me who is hungry for more things, thinkers and people like you who have this sort of optimistic, technologically driven view of the future and show us all that's, all that's possible? Well, there, there's, there's a kind of a, a new field that, that calls itself progress studies. And it, it, I think the word came from Tyler Cowen, the economist, and some various things that, that he's been supporting. So if you, you just sort of uh, search around and, and look for that, you'll find most of the people that I would be able to point you at. Last question then, a dangerous question for an author, but I would love to know what else you're, you're working on or, or what's next for you and what we can look forward to. Well, I don't know if you can look forward to it. I'm, I'm trying to write a science fiction story. Heaven only knows if I'm anywhere uh, close to competent at that because I've not tried it before. I have a, I have a wild hair to do that myself someday. So I, I sympathize with, you know, the, the feeling of entering a new field, but it's, a, it's an exciting one. I, I look forward to reading it. I'm sure many more people do. Thank you so much, Josh, for, for taking the time to talk with us and share the book. And I, I really, I can't encourage people to read it highly enough. I, I hope it, I hope it puts a dent in uh, the trajectory of our future. And I think it very well could. So thank you for, for all your contributions. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a blast and uh, see you around. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned as much there as I did and, and enjoyed it. Josh is hilarious and font of knowledge. Very, very lucky that he he shared that that time with all of us. If you like this episode, you will love the previous episode. That's a solo cast recapping the highlights of the book dives deeper into many of the lessons. Another episode might be Cliff Quang, the author of User Friendly. It was kind of a similar interview about underappreciated ideas that can have a massive impact on everybody. In that case, it was uh, user experience design, uh, the design of everyday things and, and some of those. A little call to action to, to wrap this up. I get really fired up thinking about what becomes possible if we can get this stuff right. So please, please buy Josh's book, Where Is My Flying Car? Read it support nuclear energy, refute the arguments of, of brainwashed anti-energy activists. Let's do what we can to reduce regulation, find a nanotech researcher and give them a hug, write some cool sci-fi, invest in early stage tech companies. Let's, let's dream big. Let's work hard to deserve the glorious future of abundance that is within our grasp. The future can be so, so cool. And, and it's really, we are not far from reaching impossible things and that inspires all of us and living a life surrounded by wonder that comes from a place of science and and a truly vast future is is a very very exciting thing and a healthy thing and increases our safety and our excitement and the quality of life so it's it's not just about the science but about the subjective human experience and that improves it for everybody please don't forget to check out our sponsors in the show notes the founders podcast 
and think about investing with us at Rolling Fun. But thank you so much for listening. And if you want to be a part of this movement, you know you know where to find us, ejorgensen.com. I can't wait to keep writing about and sharing more of these exciting early stage ideas and learning more and more about nuclear nanotech AI and this next industrial revolution. Thanks for joining and being part of it. Appreciate you. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.